series through the book of First Peter, and the, the foundation of that series is indescribable joy, because what we read last week was that in the midst of a, of a significant amount of uncertainty that these believers were living in, God called them to rejoice with an indescribable or an unspeakable joy because of what Jesus had done for them. And as Christians, that's the same call that we have in our lives. And listen, we live in an uncertain world, right? Like now more than ever, we wake up, turn on the news, and it just, everything seems a little bit shady, right? Like there's inflation, there is war in Europe, there's unrest. Here there's just unrest in our hearts, like with our finances and relationships and school and jobs and Atlanta traffic, which has been fun to be reintroduced to after several years in a small Midwest town where there was no traffic. And so all of the uncertainty that's swirling in our hearts can a lot of times put us in a place where we don't feel joyful, where all of the riches that we've been given in Jesus Christ feel inaccessible because the swirl of the world just has us exhausted and stressed out and unsure and edgy and angry. And scripture calls us out of that place into a joy that is indescribable. And so last week, we looked at the first chapter of this letter where Peter is, is reminding these believers who they are in Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that they have this eternal life and salvation that's been promised to them, that they've been forgiven, that they have been made a new people. And so we built that foundation last week where as we go into an uncertain world, scripture reminded us of who we are. So what we want to do this week is take the next step. We've been reminded of who we are. Now, what do we do about it? Now that we have this foundation of who we are in Jesus, how do we engage an uncertain world? Because what scripture never calls us to do is look at an uncertain world and hide from it. That's just not the picture of engagement that we've been given. But a lot of times, listen, when we face crazy uncertainty, when we face hard times, when we face just even boredom, we respond of one of two ways. We'll either just kind of hide and withdraw or the other temptation is to just conform to the world and sort of water down and make some compromises in our faith, right? And so we don't want to hit either one of those marks and uncertainty. We want to engage the world that God's put us into the way that he's called us to. And so today we're going to answer the question, how do we step into a crazy, uncertain world? How do we do that? Well, listen, here, here's how. It's really simple. Um, it's a really simple idea. We're going to walk through these four ways that we do that. Here's how. We joyfully walk into an uncertain world by clinging to grace. That's it. It's not about our effort. It's not about us being good enough. It's not about us overcoming the issues that we've been dealing with. It's about clinging to the grace of God. Because at the end of the day, that's our only hope. And the good news is it's more than enough. Have you, have you been in a situation where grace is literally all you have? Um, so when I went to Dallas Baptist University as an 18-year-old, um, I was probably not ready to be off on my own. If you looked at my time management, it was not what you would call academically oriented. And so my first high school students, please hear me, this is not a model. Like, it's funny now, but at the time, it was not a model. Um, I was the first male in my family on either side to go to college, okay? And so my mom was actually the first college graduate in our family um, from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, and so, okay. and, and so as the first male to go to college, I did not steward that opportunity with effectiveness. And so my days looked like, my first time away from home, looked a bit like this. Um, unfortunately, my mom listens to this, so some of this is going to be news to her. Um, 
I, I, I learned very quickly that 8 a.m. classes weren't your friend. And so um, I would wake up around 11. Sometimes there would have been a Greek class before then, which is not a class you can take lightly. Um, and then I would go to lunch. I would skip chapel. And um, then I would play volleyball in, on our sand court. And then maybe I'd hit my class after lunch. And then I would go home and play some PlayStation. Um, my son's like, how are you so good at FIFA? Well, son, I majored in it my first year of college. That's, that's how. Um, <laughs> then we'd go to dinner. And then we would go hang out and either play like intramural football or, you know, go out um, and, and do other stuff and then just start over again the next day. So when I ended my first semester, my GPA was a 1.7. That's not good. It's not good. And I was also there on a scholarship, which they, they would like you to maintain a GPA that's higher than a 1.7. Um, and so I had a problem because we couldn't just afford... Um, that. And so scholarship was a really big deal to my family. And so we had a provost that ran student affairs that thankfully was able to call a meeting with me since I had failed to meet the academic standards that were required for me to continue to attend the university. And he said, we're going to work something out. And in that moment, everything that I had academically and for my future and for my hopes was really dependent on the grace that this guy was going to show me. None of which I deserved, by the way. Again, that is not a model of what a college schedule looks like if you're going there soon. Don't do that. Um, and so he, he did. He worked it out. I got put on academic probation. And, and so going forward, everything in me was a response to the grace that I had been shown. Everything that I had to be able to graduate from that school, especially for the next year, was highly dependent on the grace that I had been shown. I was literally clinging to the offered to me. Our life with God really is no different. Because, listen, even if we achieve to the best of our ability, there's still this brokenness in us, right? Like there's this sinful nature that can't be fixed through our achievement or being religious enough or being wealthy enough. We are entirely dependent on the grace of God. And so listen, as we enter an uncertain world, that's three listens, by the way, if you're counting at home. Um, <laughs> we are entirely dependent on the grace of God. So how do we enter an uncertain world? How do we engage a world that is broken and scary and will challenge us and sometimes even hurt us? Well, we do it by clinging to the grace of God. And what we're gonna see in this section of 1 Peter is there's four exhortations or encouragements that he is giving to the believers and all of them are fueled by the grace of God. None of these are fueled by your effort because even as we strive to do this, there's gonna be times we fail. There's gonna be times it's difficult. There may even be times that we just can't do it on our own. And so the good news of the gospel is that we can come to God and lean into his grace as we're obedient to him and cling to the grace that he's given us in these areas. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1. This is kind of a big section of scripture. And so we're reading a lot. Um, we could do probably a month on just this section, but we're not going to do that. And so bear with me as we cover some ground today. We're going to start in verse 13. And we're going to look at the first place that we are called to cling to God's grace. And that's, we're going to cling to the grace of a renewed mindset. Scripture says that when we follow Jesus, when we put our faith in him, he makes us new. He literally renews our minds and the ways that we think. And so in 13, in verse 13, it says, Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action. The literal translation is gird up the loins of your mind. And what they would do when they would wear their togas is they would literally, if they were going to run, you can't run in a toga. I don't know if you've tried. It's not easy. And so they gird it up and kind of tie it up. A way that would maybe make more sense to us would be roll up the sleeves of your mind like you're going to roll your sleeves up and get to work. It's prepare your minds. Roll up the sleeves of your minds. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So listen, the grace of God is that he has given us the ability to renew our minds so that we can do what? Set our hope fully on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, renew your minds and try really hard. He doesn't say, renew your minds and start with religious ceremony. Now, religious ceremony has a place in a life of a follower of Jesus. That's just not where he calls us to start. He says, start by setting your minds on the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because that's the only hope that we have. We talked about it last week. When we set our minds on the hope that we have in Jesus, we can experience the freedom and mercy of God. We're not operating out of guilt. We're not operating out of a misunderstanding. We can earn our salvation. We're also not operating out of distraction. He's saying set your minds fully on the hope in Jesus Christ. Our minds are busy. I don't know if you're like me. I'm a bit ADD. And so I'll sit down, even this week, I'll sit down and start trying to work on my sermon. And then somehow five minutes later, I'm on a website reading about a left back from Portugal that Arsenal is interested in, right? And I'm like, how did I get here? Does this happen to you? Like I am the most distracted human being in the world. And so a lot of times when we wake up and our minds aren't set on the hope of Jesus, it's not out of bad intention. We're just distracted people. Our minds aren't set on the hope of Jesus because we're busy and our kids have practice and the roof is leaking or our stuff is still in Indiana. I don't know. That's a random one. Maybe that one just picked. I don't know where it came from. Um, we're distracted people. And so it's easy for us to forget this grace that God has given us where he has renewed our minds and made us a new creation where we have this ability to set our hope fully on Jesus. We don't understand the grace of God through Jesus Christ on our own. God's spirit showed us that, right? And so we have to be people that renew the grace that God has given us on having a mindset that can focus on Jesus. So do you do that? Do you do that? Where's your mind? What have you set your hope on? Is it on Jesus? Is it on your religious effort? Is it maybe your hope is on worldly success and God sort of just become an accessory to that, right? And so the role that your faith plays in your life is it's gonna get you where you really wanna go. Your mind isn't fully set on the hope of Jesus. It's maybe fully set on the hope of the freedom that you'll have financially when you finally make it or the hope of success at work or the hope of a relationship or the hope of fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. And so when our minds aren't set on Jesus and uncertainty hits, now in that uncertainty, our hope is threatened in a way that it's not when it's rooted in Jesus. We talked about that last week, right? So how do we get there? Well, we engage an uncertain world by putting our hope on Jesus, but that requires setting our mind to it. 
And so listen, this isn't like a legalistic list, but this is just wisdom. What are practices that you can engage in that set your mind on the hope of what you have in Jesus, right? One of them is prayer. And we're going to talk about that this next year. The vision of our church is going to be centered in prayer being our pathway to a dependence on God. And I'm really excited about what is going to happen as we dig into that as a people. Um, But listen, prayer will be a tool that helps you set your mind on Jesus. It is a communing with God that happens where we go to him and listen to him and allow his spirit to shape our hearts and focus our minds. None of this is going to be surprising, by the way, scripture. When we read God's word, it's living and active and it moves in us. That's why setting time aside to read the Bible is actually really important because it helps us set our minds not on what we need to do, not on the worries of the day, but on the hope that we have in Jesus. It reframes our priorities in the way that God has wired the universe to work. And so we have these spiritual disciplines not as a means of salvation, but as a response to salvation. Spiritual disciplines really do matter because they help us set our minds on the reality that we have been made new by Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, we're going to drift, right? We're going to default into kind of missing in legalism and I just got to try really hard. Or we're going to default into being distracted and tired. If we can continually be people that renew our minds and set our hope on our identity in Jesus Christ, we can step into an uncertain world and a confident understanding of who we are. Right? So he calls these people, set your minds on who you are in Jesus Christ. He says, don't be conformed to your former passions. He's saying, look, if if your mind's not set on Jesus, you're going to slide back into those former passions that he's called you out of. And so that's number one. Do we cling to the grace of a renewed mind? Here's number two. We were going to cling to the grace of a renewed reverence. A renewed reverence. Another word for that is fear. And this is one that we need to be really careful with. And I actually was like, man, I'm nervous talking about this because if we misunderstand this, th- then we can take this to a really unhealthy place and we make God someone he's not. And so let's read this and talk about what a healthy fear of God means, what it's not, and what it looks like, okay? And so I know that's just, that, that can be a little bit of a trigger word. Where how can I be afraid of God if he's good? How can, how can I be afraid of God if he loves me? Well, let's, let's look and see what scripture says. And... If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So who's he writing this to? He's writing this to Christians that are living in a pagan world that are experiencing some level of persecution, isolation, and and ostracization if they were ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. And so he's coming to them saying, listen, he says, when you're in your exile, we talked about that last week, he was speaking to them as you are living in this world like people exiled into a foreign place. This is not your home. As you are exiled, as you are in a foreign place, don't forget 
who saved you, even the redemption he's talking about here. So when he says not by silver or gold, there was a way you could be redeemed out of slavery at the time. And so one of the ways that they would do this is they would actually take their slave that they were freeing to a temple of a pagan god. They would leave the money that it would cost to free the slave as an offering to the pagan god in this temple. And then the slave would technically be freed, but they would spiritually be considered a slave to the god in the pagan temple that they were just freed from. Are you following that? This was the world that these people lived into. And so this is an intentional reference to that so that he can tell these people why the way they were free by God is better. The world looks as this way to free slaves and redeem people this way. Here's the way God did it that's better. He says, you were redeemed not with perishable things. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a spotless lamb without blemish or spot. For the sake of you, he's saying, Jesus died to redeem you of your sins in a way that is better than that of the world. This is the spiritual reality that we get to live into as Christians. So now let's read through what it means to have fear of the Lord. He's saying you should have a fear on appreciation of who God is because of his power and his holiness and his sovereignty. How does that work with our ability to know, trust, and love God? So when we think of fear of a parent, a lot of times, or fear of an authority even, that makes us a little bit nervous and we can't square that with a loving God because the fear is rooted in what if they want to hurt me and do something to me, right? Like at its core, that's what's happening. And when I'm at my worst as a parent, my kids fear me because they're going to get spanked, right? Like, do you just disrespect mom? Come here, get spanky. We have a spatula named Spanky. Um, it's mildly effective sometimes. And so listen, that's not the fear that God calls us to of him. This is not a fear of how God's gonna punish and get us. That's not what this means. This is a fear all in reverence of who he is because of what he's done. Practically, let's play this out in our lives with, with an area that none of us are reverent and we have no fear of, okay? So every day, there is a weight, a law, and a command on your life that you have no fear or reverence towards. Here's how I know this. Because I've driven on Johnson Ferry Road and there's a sign. And the sign says 35. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. That means 60. <laughs> that means 60. I don't care where you're driving. You see a speed limit sign. You have no fear of that sign. 35 means 60. I learned to drive in Texas. Everyone knows that, okay? None of us have a fear of breaking the law because we look at the speed limit. We're like, that's a suggestion. That's not that big a deal. I'm in a hurry. I don't have time. I need to hit the apex of this turn so I can overtake the minivan, right? Like we have no fear of that speed limit because the consequences of breaking it just aren't that big a deal. We might take a hit on our insurance, we might get a ticket. Maybe we can get out of it. If the police officer doesn't show up in court, you just walk free, right? Like we know it's not that big a deal. And so we don't live in a great deal of fear or reverence of the speed limit. We just don't because we don't really think that it's gonna be that big of a deal if we do it. Unfortunately, a lack of fear of God looks more like that. When we don't have a fear of God, we treat God like a speed limit sign. You know, I know God made these rules, but it's not that big a deal. He's forgiven me. God's not, when we turn him like into a genie, right? Like he's blue and sounds like Robin Williams and God's purpose in our minds is to give us what we want. We would never say that, but in our hearts, it's kind of how we view him. And, and so what can happen is we can become very casual around the person of God. We can neuter him in our minds of his power and his might and his holiness. And he's just not that big a deal to us. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but whatever. Listen, I, this is what's really important. 
And, and what this is reminding us of is that when we are going to engage in an uncertain world, we have to engage in an uncertain world with a reverence and understanding for God's holiness, not because we're scared of what he's going to do to us, but because we understand that what he has asked us to do really matters. It is a big deal, and there is a weightiness and holiness to his commands that we should want to take seriously and follow not because God's out to get us, but because he has wired the universe a certain way. And that not only do we have a fear of his holiness and an appreciation of his holiness, but we have an understanding and a fear of what happens if we leave the pathway of obedience he's laid out for us, right? Because at the end of the day, God hasn't called us to things to punish us. He's called us to live a certain way because it is best for our joy. And just like these people, we live in a world that really doesn't have a lot of awe or reverence for God. In fact, we kind of live in this, this place in humanity where we don't have a lot of use for the spiritual. Like, we really don't. We're very pragmatic, practical people. We can explain it with science. Um, ancients were stupid, and it was magic. Like, we don't need that anymore. And so we live in a world that would say, we don't need to be scared of God. He's not that big a deal. He doesn't, he can't tell me what to do, right? Scripture would call us to say, listen, as we engage an uncertain world, we really need to do so with a reverence and appreciation for God's power and God's holiness. As we engage a broken world, we're not casually talking to them about a moral code to help them live a more effective upper middle class life. As we're engaging a broken world, we're, we're not calling them into a pyramid scheme with Jesus, right? Like, it's not what this is. We're literally talking about eternity. We're talking about redemption and hope and healing. We're talking about a very powerful God who hates sin and wants to destroy evil because he loves his people. We should have an awe and a reverence for that. And so that is a big part of why we worship is we are stirring up and framing and renewing a reverence for the person of God. When we come here, when we take communion, we want to take it seriously. That doesn't mean that God isn't present and close and loving. It just means we're not approaching something casually. This is a big deal. Um, I, I know like uh, for a lot of us, the more we do something, we can sometimes in, in the repetition of it kind of forget the meaning. We don't want to do that. We want to be people that cling to this grace we have of renewed awe and appreciation and fear of the bigness and holiness of God in a healthy way, right? And so we want to be people that fear the Lord because that fear and understanding of who he is is going to keep us moving towards the holiness that we're commanded to seek at the beginning, right? When he says, be holy as I am holy, if you don't care about holiness and it's not a big deal, you'll never pursue it. We want to be people that pursue holiness. We want to be people that take God seriously. We want to have that healthy fear as we worship and we celebrate who he is. We want to do it with an awe and a reverence. It's appropriate for the creator of the universe who saved us, right? So what's number three? We want to cling to that obedience um, that God has called us to. In 1 Peter, we are in chapter 22. He writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, 
in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's called us to engage a really uncertain world with obedience. And specifically, obedience is outlined in a really clear, beautiful way here. It's outlined by having a brotherly, sincere love for one another. And so this, this first section where he says, having purified your souls by obedience can be confusing because we know that we haven't been purified by our actions. We've been purified by the sacrifice of Jesus. So how does this work? How can we purify our own souls? This is specifically talking about the continuing action of something that's happened in the past. So this is not telling you that you purify yourself through obedience and love. That's not what this is. This is teaching us that as we are obedient to God, we are living into a continuation of the holiness that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So do not read this and feel a pressure that, oh man, I have to purify my own soul and I did not love someone. Well, that's, that's not what this is saying. You're purifying yourselves by your obedience. You're living into a purification that's already happened. Okay. But what does obedience look like? How do we know? It's really simple. It's loving one another earnestly, a sincere brotherly love. That's what we're called to do. He goes on to say, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so this is really clear. If we're going to engage a world that is very uncertain, we do so by being obedient to God. How do we know if we're being obedient to God? Do you have a sincere love for the people around you? The end of holiness and obedience is always a love for other people. It's always a love for other people. So even when we read the be holy as I am holy, I think we struggle with that a little bit. Um, I know I did growing up in the church. You didn't want to be too holy, right? Like if you were too holy, you were weird and you didn't really want to do that. And like, so I grew up, um, I was allowed to listen really to two tapes. We had tapes at the time. Um, it was Stephen Curtis Chapman, Great Adventure and Sandy Patty. That was it. Anything else even my mom was even a little skeptical of jars of clay. Their long hair looks like Nirvana. I don't know. I need to listen to them first. And so, so I, I kind of came up in this bubble a little bit and then got to college and got out of the bubble a little bit, um, which explains the 1.7 earlier, right? And so it was this weird tension I had in my life where like, well, if I'm too holy, I might not fit in. And that was a huge wrestle for me because when, when my parents split up, I kind of went through this Star Trek phase that was longer than it should have been. Um, and, and nobody really tipped me off on that going bad for me, and it did. And so being in a place, you know, kind of in middle school where I didn't feel like I fit in, that was a driving idol for me. And so holiness was a real wrestle for me in college. If I'm too holy, I don't want to be one of the weird kids. And evangelicalism has kind of felt that pressure at large really since the 80s where we don't want to be too weird because then people won't want to come to church. We need to probably water down the holiness a little bit. We're going to freak people out. Listen, holiness should never end in a place where we feel like we're better than other people. And I think the reason that some of us kind of flex off against the idea of pursuing holiness too loudly is what if we come off like self-righteous people? What if we look prideful? What, what, if, what, if we, what if we start to build this idol of look at how holy I am? I only listen to Sandy Patty. I don't think anybody's saying that anymore, but you understand, like you're following this though. And so we kind of have this fear of God. We don't want to be too holy because we don't want to repel anyone. Okay, 
Authentic holiness is never going to be anything less than attractive because authentic holiness is rooted in the humility of what God has done in our lives and it displays itself in an overflow of selfless love for the people around us. So holiness should, true holiness should never end with a heart that would say, look at how much better I am than these people. True holiness should always end with Jesus died for me so that I can love and model that sacrifice for the people around me. So how do we know if we're being obedient? Are we loving people? Are we loving each other? And so we don't always do our best when uncertainty hits us, right? So one of the reasons why the idea of joy is hard in uncertainty is because nobody feels joyful when things are uncertain. Usually the unhealthy side of our Enneagram number comes out with uncertainty. And so look at this checklist of, of what he asks us to put away. He says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He says, get rid of that. Those are barriers to you being obedient. You cannot earnestly love people if those elements are present in your life and relationships. When things get uncertain, this is kind of the checklist we go to often to cope with uncertainty. Malice, can you believe those people? Deceit. I don't want to tell them the truth because what if they really found out they might not like me? Hypocrisy, you need to do this, but this is different for me. And envy, well, I could be happy if I had the money that they had, right? And slander, can you believe what that guy did? Can you believe, he, and then you, again, like we could have fun going into specifics on that. I'm not going to do that. All of these characterizations, unfortunately, tend to be reflexes of our heart when we're scared, when we're mad, when we're tired, when we're uncertain. So he gives us this roadmap with uncertainty. He says, put those things away. We can't love people well if we're consumed by envy. One of the best ways to do is just turn off Instagram, right? There is a massive amount of data that would say social media is like the worst thing that we've ever done to ourselves. And I think, I think my grandkids are gonna talk to me about social media the way I talk to my grandparents about smoking. Like, what were you thinking? Why did you think this was a good idea? Uh, there was a lot of data that backed up this was unhealthy. We've gotta put away slander and envy. We've gotta get rid of it. We've got to be people that put away malice and deceit. We've gotta be vulnerable and open and honest because we are called to be obedient. You cannot miss by engaging uncertainty by loving the people around you. When we say you are loved here, we really want that to be true. We want to be a people that are unapologetically open-handed in how we love one another. So man, like let's, let's take 30 minutes for, for greeting time. You know, like we won't really do that, but like take it. We want to be a people that err on the side of love. We want people to err on the side of love because that's how we engage in an uncertain world. We're never going to defuse and stabilize an uncertain world through yelling at people and fighting. It's just not going to happen. But we can reflect the truth of the gospel into an uncertain world by how we love people. Okay, let's get to number four because I'm running tight on time. Um, like, Man, it's a four-point sermon. He's never done that before. It's true. It's been like a long time. So <laughs> here's the last place that he calls us to cling to, the grace of renewed community. We're called to cling to the grace of a renewed community. In uncertainty, we cling to each other. Look at what this says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sign of God, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. He's the rejected stone, which remember, he's writing to a people that have been rejected by the world around them. 
This has got to be encouraging to them. Hey, I know you're rejected, so is Jesus. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, which is a weird image, but when you read the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, this idea of a stone is synonymous with a Messiah that's coming to save God's people. And so he's intentionally calling them back to this Old Testament picture of who the Messiah would be with a stone. It's, it's really powerful imagery. And so as you come to the living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Rephrase this, if you don't know Jesus, you're always going to have issues with who he is. Right, like the truth of the gospel of who Jesus Christ is is always going to be a stumbling block to you. Jesus is never going to compromise who he is in a way that's gonna make someone who doesn't understand him fully comfortable. They're saying that's just the reality. Don't be surprised when people who don't know Jesus don't understand. That shouldn't trigger you into being angry or frustrated with him. It's just, it's not gonna make sense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's chat a bit about this. Uh, when we have been made and he uses a couple of different images here. He, he, he uses the images of a royal priesthood and a holy people. He also uses the image of living stones that are being built into a temple, right? So there's these two images that represent the new community we have. We have been made a new family with a very specific purpose to proclaim and reflect the excellencies of God. What's the purpose of the church? Why do we engage the world? It's not so we can get a bunch of people in a building, right? Again, this is not a pyramid scheme for Jesus. It's not, it's not so we can build a political empire that looks the way that we want to, which I know is an uncomfortable truth because that's kind of been the MO of a lot of reflexive Christianity for a long time in this country. That's not ultimately our purpose. Ultimately, our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has saved us, that's it. When we are in an uncertain world, we can confidently walk in with a purpose that we have been made one together to reflect the excellencies of God. And so as a church, when we talk about engaging in an uncertain world, that's the heart that drives it. We wanna reflect the goodness of God. We wanna reflect the excellencies and the mercies and the grace of God into a broken world. And we'll never do that through legislation. That's not to say that Christians shouldn't engage, but that's fine, that's not, but to, that's not what he said. The purpose of the church is to reflect the excellencies of God. We come together so that people can see God's goodness and love and holiness. He says, look, be careful with your conduct around unbelievers. He doesn't say if they speak bad about you, by the way. He says when they speak bad about you, just keep your conduct clean so that they can understand who Jesus is. How do we as a church walk into an uncertain world that isn't sure how they feel about us right now? Well, we proclaim the excellencies of God. How do we do that? Well, we link really all four of these places together. 
right? We proclaim the excellencies of God by how we put our hope in Jesus when we renew our minds, right? We proclaim the excellencies of God by being a people that truly fear the Lord. We proclaim the excellencies of God by how we're obedient, how we love one another, and we proclaim the excellencies of God by living into this communal purpose. So when we say, hey, it's important to come to church, it's because you've been called to be one. This act here today is an act of reflecting the glory of God. It is good for our souls. It's what we were created to do. We call you to serve because it's a way that we reflect the glory of God into the world. We reflect his goodness and his salvation and his light. And we do that together. So we do it together. Thank God online church isn't the only option we have anymore because now we can come together. And so as a church, we've got to ask that question, are we clinging to these graces? Are we clinging to these graces? The grace that God has given us to set our minds on him, how, how, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with our awe and reverence of God? Has God become a cosmic stop sign? Ah, Jesus covered it, it's fine. We want to back away from that and remember who he is. How are we doing in obedience? How are we loving people? How are we loving one another? What does it look like? Sometimes the absence of love isn't conflict. Sometimes it's apathy. Are we actively engaged in loving the people around us? And then finally, do we, do we really lean into the purpose that God's called us to as a church, right? As a church, we have a purpose. We're living stones. A piece of who Jesus is has been put into us. We're called to reflect the truth of who God is. And so let's do that this week. Let's be a people and let's be a church that reflects the truth of who God is to a very uncertain world. The stability of how we love, the stability of how we reflect God's holiness and the stability of how we take care of each other is going to be something that truly shines in a unique way in a world that has none of that. So as we prepare to come to the table, as we prepare to celebrate these tangible pictures of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, his son, let's, let's pray and let's just ask God to search our hearts. Let's ask God to prepare us to be a people that can set our minds on the true hope that we have in Jesus this week. Let's be a people that are prepared to live out the calling that we've been given, not out of our effort, but out of the grace that we've been given through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us to figure this out by ourselves. We thank you that you're a God that in the uncertainty of the world has sent his son to die for our sins. We thank you that you have given us a renewed mind so that we can put our focus on our true hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I pray this week that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. You would encourage us and give us boldness where we need to be bold. God, I pray that you would help us to really be a church that lives into the purpose that you've given us. Help us to be living stones that reflect the greatness of who you are to the world around us. God, help us to be a people that seek holiness earnestly because we have this healthy fear of, of who you are. And God, help us to love each other. Help us to continue to be a people that are marked and defined by how we love the people that you've put into our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.